0: Heavenly Father, we've gathered here this morning recognizing fully that apart from Christ coming and giving His life to redeem sinners like us, we are still rebellious children enslaved under the law. But we come this morning recognizing and believing that He in fact did come as a man and do the work that we could not and would not do, and that is pay for our sins. He's done that work, Father, to bring us into a family just like this, to wash us clean, to make us sons and daughters of You, and co-heirs with Him. Father, I ask that You would bless us this morning with the understanding that in His coming and in His dying, we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, and live today and for all eternity as sons and daughters. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would overcome any malaise that covers our hearts or minds this morning, becoming so used to a Christmas celebration or even the word incarnation. And instead, Father, make us rightly moved, in awe that you would send your son to become a man to do the unthinkable. We want to worship you, Father, this morning, and we cannot do that in the flesh. And so I pray that you would overcome our flesh, cause us, Lord, to rejoice deeply in our hearts this morning, and praise you, for you are worthy of it, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I I think I should be able to just say to you, God became a man, and I think that would be sufficient for you to fall out of your chairs. It is such an utterly profound statement, and in the context of our faith, we say it so much and we talk about it so much, we actually diminish the magnitude of what that statement is. If I told you that Jesus Christ, right now, the Son of God, as a man, is right down the street, if he's across the street, you would empty this place to go see him. We believe this to be true, and it should have its right impact on us, regardless of the time that's passed since the Incarnation, and regardless of the number of times you've heard the word or celebrated Christmas. The incarnation today should have the same, if not a greater, impact on you than it did 2,000 years ago. On December 25th, 274 A.D., the Roman emperor, Lucius Aurelian, established the cult of Sol Invictus. He established it as an official religion in the empire. And it made Sol Invictus, the, the idol, the unconquerable son, one of the premier deities in the Roman religion. It just happened to follow, so on December 25th, it just happened to follow a celebration called the Saturnalia, which families would gather. It was the worshiping of the deity of the God of Saturn. And families would gather and they'd exchange gifts, very similar to what many of you did yesterday. It wasn't until 336 A.D., under Emperor Constantine, that December 25th was reclaimed for Christ. And December 25th was set aside as a day for the entire empire, not to recognize Sol Invictus, the unconquerable son, S-U-N, but to recognize the real son of God, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh. Arguably, one of the most significant moments in all of human history God coming as a man. For 1700 years, the church of Jesus Christ has stopped on December 25th to recognize the incarnation of God. Now for many I know in the West, the holiday has become very secular, even in the context of our churches. We, we have lots of time off work and school. We have family gatherings. We have the exchanging of gifts. We have lots of red and green And you know that fellow who goes, ho, ho, ho. But long before Aurelian or Constantine or even our modern-day version of Christmas, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, reminded the church in Galatia how important it is to believe, truly believe, that the Son of God became a man and dwelt among us. He reminds them of that because apart from truly believing that Jesus Christ became a man, you cannot embrace the gospel. You cannot know the gospel. And so this day, December 26th, the day after many of you celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, I want to emphasize the importance for you as well, not religiously, but internally, for you to believe with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that Christ did in fact become a man and then did the unthinkable to redeem sinners like us. I want us to have a deeper understanding of the incarnation because it's the only answer to the hope of fallen man. It's our only hope that Christ did in fact come and do the work that he did. It's the only hope of us being set free from the slavery we see in our lives, the sin in our own hearts and that end which is coming before a holy God. Being reunited with him as sons and daughters and co-heirs, rather than being judged by him for all eternity. I'd like to accomplish that this morning with your help by talking about three things. One, the necessity of Christmas. It's more than just a secular holiday. Number two, the Savior of Christmas. You know who that is. It's Christ. And number three, the gifts of Christmas. Not what you got yesterday, something infinitely, and I mean infinitely, internally better. So the theme of the sermon is simple. The Son of God became a man to make men sons and daughters of God. The Son of God became a man to make men, sinful men, sinful women just like us, sons and daughters of the living God. That's, well, I guess I could stop there if you believe that and we could just continue singing. Number one, the necessity of Christmas. If you were with us last week, we were actually in Acts 15 and the reason that I went to Galatians 4 is that it it ties into Acts 15 perfectly. In Acts 15, if you remember, Paul and Barnabas and Titus and some of the others from the church in Antioch of Syria, they went down to Jerusalem, and they, they had the Jerusalem Council. And they were trying to determine what does it mean, what is the gospel in terms of being saved and coming into the church. And some of the Judaizers that were in Galatia, where Paul was doing his missionary work and where this letter comes from, and then many of the Pharisees that were in the church in Jerusalem were arguing that it was the gospel plus something else, the gospel plus circumcision, or the gospel plus the laws of Moses. And so Paul had actually written the letter to the churches in Galatia months, only months prior to Acts 15 when he was standing with Peter and Titus before the Jerusalem council. And he's dealing with the same issue. What is the gospel? What do you have to do? What is the responsibility on the believer to be saved? And then how do you come into the covenant community of believers. And the emphasis, of course, goes back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he, Paul's going to argue that in the totality of the gospel, we don't add to it. We don't take away, but we don't add to it. So the question that we would have in the context of Galatians 4 and Acts 15 and today with Christmas is why the incarnation? I mean, why, why did God have to become a man In order to save us, surely if there were a better way, he would have. If there were a better way than the cross, he would have. We know that because Christ asked and the Father said no on the night that he was betrayed. One word slavery. Slavery is the reason that the Son of God became a man. See, my beloved, whether you believe this or not, and I hope that you do, you were created to be a son or daughter of God the Father. You were created in the beginning to be an heir that would rule with Christ forever and ever. That's your purpose. That was your original design being created in the image of God. But you all know the story in Genesis chapter three. Man rebelled against God. We separated ourselves from the love of God. We cast ourselves out of the garden and we became orphans, spiritual orphans, subject to what? Slavery, sin, sin. And death. And that's the story up to the cross of Jesus Christ. All humanity, through the sins of Adam and Eve, fell into this particular state, state of orphans. Here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul wants to, he wants us to understand that, that we're all in the same boat until Christ comes and does something miraculous. And he uses an illustration here, one that we probably don't think of well. Most of you probably are not heirs to. To big estates, maybe you are. Um, but look at, look at verse one in Galatians chapter four. He'd actually actually jump your eyes up to verse 28 with me. Paul's establishing the law and the promises for Jew and Gentile. And he says in verse 28, "There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus." And then he says this in verse 29, "And if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." So this great inheritance made to Abraham, he says, if you're in Christ, you have that too. And then he wants to give an illustration of how we all start outside of that inheritance and God must bring us in through Christ. Look at verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, but though he is the owner of everything... But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. And so he he gives an illustration of a child, an heir to an estate, a prominent estate, but he's still young. He's a minor. And so he has guardians and he has managers, and that is the law that, that Paul is trying to describe here. Even though he is an heir and he owns everything, and everything will one day belong to him, until he comes of age, he can't have any of it, and he is very much treated like a slave in the house. But that changes. Look at the latter part of verse 2. He remains a child in the house like a slave until the day set by the father. Until the father comes in and says, all right, son, you're no longer a child. Now you inherit my kingdom, my property. And the ruling heirs would be those who would come into the full maturation here in the context of of Christ, that we, the church, would be those people. And so with this illustration, what Paul's trying to establish very clearly is that Jew and Gentile, were all enslaved. Look at verse three. So he's talking now, he says, drawing back upon the illustration of the child in the house who's like a slave because he is still under the guardianship and the law. He said, we, in the same way we also when we were children, that's when, before we came to a saving grace in Christ, when you were still what? Dead in your sins and transgressions. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so the Apostle Paul does something extraordinary here. In one fell swoop, he takes all of mankind and he puts us under the same umbrella. He says it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, you're all under sin. You are born into sin. You exercise sin And that is the common lot of every man enslaved to what? The elementary principles of the world. So what is that? What are the elementary principles of the world? Well, it depends on on the culture in which you were raised, right? The, The Jews, they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the law. They believed that they could be set free from the mess that we have here. They understood that we live in a fallen world. They struggled with their own sin. They saw the injustice and the oppression and the pain and suffering in their own culture, but they thought that by living in accordance with the law, they could be set free. We call that what? We call that legalism. Well, the Gentiles, they weren't trying to submit to the law to gain their freedom. They were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world too, but they thought they could find freedom not by worshiping the unconquerable son of God, but by worshiping Solovictus, a God, a deity that was not real. You say, well, what is the sole invictus of the West today? Well, you, you may have one that's very different than I do. We have several, though, that are prominent. Fame, money, sex, food, entertainment, prestige. All of these are the gods that we create as a means of trying to find freedom. We don't call that legalism. We call that licentiousness, right? Doing what you desire to do most. And if you do that, you will set yourself free. What Paul is saying is everyone is enslaved to sin. Either you're a legalist following the law, either made by God or someone else or yourself, thinking that that will set you free, or you're, you're licentious following the desires of your heart, believing that if you satisfy that internal desire, remember, be what you can be, do what you want to do, be all that you can be, then you'll be set free. The problem with this is that both legalism and licentiousness are just the different sides of the same coin of slavery, right? Neither set us free. You can't be set free by adhering to the law of God or your own law, and you can't by, be set free by following the desires of your own heart. Both lead to slavery. For the past two years, if you've been living in this area and probably throughout the world, I think we've seen the complete and absolute failure of either legalism or licentiousness solving the problems that humanity faces. With the spread of COVID and man's radical, inordinate response to it, the universal slavery and suffering of mankind has been magnified significantly over the past two years. I would say in recent history, more so than especially those of us in the West who have experienced. Across the globe, suffering from the virus, suffering from fear of the virus, suffering from oppressive governments in response to the virus, suffering from economic meltdowns, it's highlighted dissents the reality that we are in a fallen world and it is hard. It is hard to live in this fallen world. All the pain, all the suffering, all the uncertainty and all the real death that we've been surrounded by has become more acute in these past two years. It's revealed the degree to which we live in a fallen world. We are sinners participating in that and we have no way out apart from God. There's no way out. But instead of turning to God and his word, And walking through this current crisis in both wisdom and faith, the masses for the most part, and many in the church, they either turn to legalism or they turn to licentiousness to find an answer, thinking somehow if we can just pass enough laws and adhere to the laws, then we'll be set free from the binding of this current crisis. And if everyone would just follow the law, you probably heard that, if you would just do what we're told to do, then we'd be all better off than just Recently in September, um, after issuing a federal mandate requiring all federal employees to be double vaccinated and the boosters coming required as well, regardless of age, regardless of health risk, and regardless of religious convictions, President Biden said this, we've been patient, so here's your government oppression, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us. If you just follow the law then we wouldn't be suffering like we're suffering. That's a legalistic approach. Not everyone has taken that. Many have moved to the other extreme. They haven't put their faith in politicians or vaccines or health officials. They've turned instead to their own desires. How do I get through the pain? How do I get through the fear? How do I get through the anxiety? I'm just going to submerge myself into what I want to do most. Millions of Americans right now are still receiving Government subsidies, refusing to go back to work, not because there aren't jobs available. As of last month, 10.4 million jobs open, but we can't get people to work. You say, well, why is that? Well, one of the things that we've realized during this time, if the government pays people to stay home, they will enjoy that slothfulness, they'll enjoy that laziness, and that pleasure will get them through, so we don't go back to work. Laziness for many has been more pleasurable than a good day's work. Others have used more conventional strategies. During 2020, for example, listen to this. Those who started or upped their use, substance abuse, drugs, and alcohol, increased 13% and overdoses increased 18% in one year. Why is that? How do I get through this crisis? I'll turn to that which I think will satisfy my soul. Netflix recorded 16 million new subscribers in the first three months of 2020. That's a 100% increase from the previous year. Why is that? I'll watch TV. That'll get me through it. Pornography spiked during the pandemic as well with an increase ranging from 38 to 61%. In other words, in order to get through crisis, if you're a legalist, you're gonna adhere to the law. If you're licentious, you're gonna seek pleasure. Sometimes you'll do both. But I would argue that most of us at the end here of 2021 going in 2022, we would certainly say of the United States, and I would say this is probably a global phenomenon, we are worse off. We're worse off spiritually. We're worse off economically. We are worse off psychologically, socially, politically. We're not better off than we were two years ago, and yet we've implemented many laws, and we've indulged ourselves to extremes, and yet it's getting worse, not better. The past two years have testified, I believe, to the abject failure of secular solutions to deal with slavery and sin. We try it and it fails. So we try it more and it fails more. The problem is we know there's a problem, right? We can't just not have an answer. We're going through it. We experience, everybody experiences the suffering and pain of living as a sinful creature in a fallen world. We know there's a problem but we can't fix it unless we turn to God. There's no real solution for pain and suffering apart from Jesus Christ. There's no real way to be broke, break free of your slavery apart from Jesus Christ. And this, my beloved, is why Christmas is necessary. You say, oh, so we can get the presents and feel good? No, that's licentiousness. So we can be legalistic and gather on Christmas Eve and worship? No, that's legalism. No, Christmas is necessary because we can't solve the problem of slavery and sin and death. God must, and God did by sending his son into the world. So then you ask, okay, That's glorious news, but why did he have to come? Why did did God have to come as a man? Point number two, the Savior of Christmas. We know the necessity. Man needs a Savior. The question is, the Savior of Christmas, why did he have to be a man? If the only way for us to transcend the condition, the slavery and sin and death that we experience, if the only way to transcend that, to rise above it, is not by our own reason, our own will, but is by God, that the only way that we can out, come out of this childlike dependency that we see under the law in Galatians 4 and become heirs, co-heirs with Christ as God created us to be at the beginning was for the Father, God the Father, to intervene by sending God the Son. It's the only way. Look at, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, that's, that's the coming of Christ, the first Christmas, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now the phrase, the fullness of time had come, it dates all the way back to many of the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, but it's specifically, Paul's drawing upon that here in the illustration he has back in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, the date set by the father for what? For the child to inherit its estate. That child is Jesus Christ. The date was 2,000 years ago when God the Son in the little town of Bethlehem would be born of the Virgin Mary and the Son of God would become a man. Truly man. So that he could what? Inherit the kingdom of God. The Son of God came in the flesh to inherit the kingdom of God. Prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. Listen. Several hundred years before Christ came, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government, here listen, the government shall be upon his shoulders and the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. So he had to come in order to inherit the kingdom because he is the rightful heir of the kingdom. And he had to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death and be raised from the dead because he didn't want to reign alone. He wants to reign with his children. He wants to reign with brothers and sisters in Christ. But the only way this could be filled, two necessary conditions for this promise that Jesus Christ would inherit the kingdom and then he would bring sons and daughters to reign with him. The only way, two things had to happen. Number one, God the Father had to send God the Son. God the Father had to send God the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse four again, when the fullness of time had come, God, God being the Father, sent forth his Son, God also. And so Paul here, he is affirming the inner workings of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we get the understanding that it's the Son who came. It's the Son who came and became a man. Not just a messenger, not an angel, not a prophet, but the very Son of God. The second person of the holy triune God. You say, oh, that's good. He's the only begotten Son of the Father. God from God. Say it. Light from light. True God from true God. You say, one in being with the Father. Unbelievable. He really is God. And he's a man. The exact same time. Why the Son? You ever wondered that? Why not the Father? Why not the Spirit? Why did the Son, why was it necessary for the Son to come? Well, I alluded to this last week or two weeks ago. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this. He said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Right, so at the fullness of time had come, the true heir of the Father's house had descended in the form of a man and he kept his Father's laws perfectly. He kept every decree, every precept, and every law in loving obedience as a son. He didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to because he's a loving son. He wanted to please his father. And the result, he received the kingdom. He received the kingdom. The heavens and the earth are given to the father, are given to the son as an inheritance. But he never intended to reign over his kingdom alone. Ever. It was God's desire. It was Christ's desire and the father's plan all along to have redeemed men and women reign along with him. But in order for that to happen, you can't remain a slave child in the estate. You can't stay in a state of sin under guardians and managers. You have to be set free from your orphan like status and brought into the kingdom as true sons and daughters of the living God. And so God the Father had to send the Son so that the Son could do what? He could make the Father known. Right? How how are you going to be, how are you going to go from an orphan to a son or daughter if you don't know your father? Right. The problem is we, sin is separated from, us, from the father and therefore we have to be brought back into a relationship with him. And so I would ask you, who better to send than the son to show you your future sonship and daughtership in the kingdom of God? Who better than Jesus Christ? Matthew 11, Jesus continued, he said this, no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. To reveal him as what? As Father. As Father. The Son of God came to reveal God as Father. and not, So not just God in general, not just the triune God, not, not all his omni qualities, but specifically the God, God the Son to show his heavenly Father who he is that we might come in as sons and daughters and have him as our Father. You remember when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray? Do you remember how You know this, how he instructed the disciples to call upon the Lord. He said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father. So Jesus is saying something extraordinary here. He's saying, He is my Father. I've known Him from eternity past. I've known Him and I love Him. He knows me and He loves me. And I'm telling you to call on Him as Father too, because now you are a son or daughter as well. You're brought in to this glorious family of God. Friends, if I, were, if I were going to adopt a son from China right now, and let's say that I was unable to fly for whatever reason, but I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to get to know him, I wanted to, to tell him about me and my wife and my family, and I wanted to express my love for him, my excitement for him to, to come from China and into this country and into my house to be raised as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to communicate that to him, but I couldn't get to him. He said, well, you could, you could Zoom, maybe, okay, Hate it. You could call him. You could text him. But if I couldn't go, wouldn't it be better to send one of my sons? And wouldn't it be so much better? My own flesh and blood, a son in my family, I could send to the son I'm going to adopt. And wouldn't they be able to tell him about me, his future father? And wouldn't one of my sons be able to tell this adopted son-to-be about our home and what it's like to be in the Booth family? And you might rethink the whole thing. I hope not. It would be better to send one of my sons, right? My beloved, how, how much more so God the Father sending his son to tell us about him, to tell us about his glory and his majesty, to tell us about his house and what it's going to be like to live there, to tell us about his will and plan for our lives, that he doesn't want us to remain childlike heirs with guardians and managers, enslaved to sin. He doesn't want us to remain orphans, but this Father is calling us into His home through Christ. So much better for God the Father to send the Son to reveal Himself to us. Not only was God the Son able to tell us clearly about the Father and His plan for redeeming mankind, but we know from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is one with the Father. So it wasn't just the Son saying, here, here I am, here's my Father. He's saying, If you know the Father, what? You know me. If you know me, you know the Father. Remember his dialogue with Philip in John chapter 14? Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The Father and I are one. We're one. So much better than my sending one of my boys, God the Father sending the Son. You know the Son, you know the Father. If you know the Son, you know the Father. And if you know the Son, you know how to become a son or daughter in his kingdom too. In other words, you don't have to remain an orphan. By Christ's coming, he can make this path known to us. But there was a second work. It wasn't just sufficient that God the Son came as a man. There was a second work, verse 4. He was had to be born of a woman under the law. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So Jesus Christ did not come as he appeared in the Old Testament. It wasn't in the, the burning bush. He didn't descend upon a mountain with, with thunder and lightning and smoke. Um, he didn't speak out of a whirlwind or a pillar of cloud by day or fire by night. He came in the flesh as a man, just like you, just like me, and he came under the law, meaning what? Not under the curse of the law because he was sinless, but he came under the righteous expectations of God for every single human being. The law that God expects all those created in his image to joyfully follow, and we would if not for sin. He said, but but why a man? Why flesh and bone? Why did he actually have to become like us And there's so many reasons for this and way too much to talk about. But I I thought, what is the central issue of this? Where Where did sin start? You say, well, Genesis chapter three, the garden. Yes, but where did it start in the garden? Wasn't it in the heart of man? It was in the heart of Adam and Eve that sin originated. And therefore, the only sacrifice that could be made would be another man with what? Clean hands and a pure heart. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart can ascend the hill of the Lord, can make a sacrifice on our behalf. Had to be another man with a pure heart. And it had to be because, you know this, you've heard it multiple times, the just punishment against our sins, against a holy God, according to the Bible, is what? It's eternal death. It's eternal death. And no sin can be paid for, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood and not just any blood would do in order to pay for our crimes against an infinitely valuable eternally majestic being like god the punishment must be eternal as well your sins are eternal in nature your sins are infinite in nature and therefore the punishment must be infinite and eternal too and that means my beloved if you come before god Without Christ, He will judge you and He will cast you into the outer darkness forever and ever because that punishment must go on forever and ever. Why? He is a holy God. We've sinned against a thrice holy God. It must be you or it must be someone else. But it can't just be anybody else. It must be a perfect substitute. That's why the sheep don't work and the goats don't work. They never did. That's why your circumcision or your Adherence to the laws of Moses or your legalism or your licentiousness, they do not work either. Man is the pinnacle of God's good creation. Created in his image, possessing greater value than any other creature, so no other sacrifice other than man, another image bearer, would do. But it had to be a man without sin. It had to be a perfect man. Well, who can live a perfect life? It has to be God. It has to be God who becomes a man who's not born under the curse of adam and eve the perfect image bear someone who would live a perfect life born under the same law same requirement same righteous requirement but remained free from the curse altogether and this is we make a big deal of this at christmas because it's really really important it's so miraculous that god through the holy spirit became a man in the virgin mary don't sacrifice your doctrine on the virgin mary You're going to screw up the incarnation. You screw up the incarnation, you make a mess of the cross. The Virgin Mary is really, really important. He had to be born by the Holy Spirit of Mary because that means he would not inherit the sin of Adam. And by not inheriting the sin of Adam, he could become the second Adam. He could become the new Adam. The new Adam of a new people. A holy people set apart by God for his glory, 1 Peter 2, 9. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession with Christ, the new Adam, the second Adam as our head. So the Savior had to come, the Son of Man, the Son of God had to come to reveal the Father to us to make us understand what it means to become a son or daughter of God. And he had to be truly man in order to be the acceptable sacrifice to God. It's no surprise to you that's that's Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. 2,000 years ago, he came to earth and he faithfully fulfilled the law of God. He lived the perfect life. And not as a robot, and not as a computer, and not because he had to. He came as a man because he wanted to. And he lived a perfect life in loving obedience as a son because he wanted to. That was his expression of love to his father. And the father was what? Well pleased with his son. He was in many ways like the child heir back in verses 1 and 2. However, unlike Paul's illustration, Jesus was never enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. He was freed from the sin of Adam and therefore he was able to do what we cannot do apart from him he was able to be listen the true heir of God he was able to be the true Israel the entire history of Israel the sons of God disobeying against God not Jesus he became the true heir living in loving obedience as a son to his father and therefore he could unlike any other voluntarily place himself also under the curse of the law he could do that and he did that Willingly, offering his life and what? And his human body. He came in the flesh offering his human body as a substitute and our place on the cross so that he could take the eternal punishment that we rightly deserve in our flesh forever and ever. He could take the eternal crimes and do something extraordinary. He could make you orphan. And you were an orphan if you, if you know Christ now, you were once an orphan. He can take you as an orphan and make you a son or daughter of his father. He can bring you in. The substitutionary atonement that we celebrate every single Sunday, especially when we take communion, it was made possible by the incarnation. You can't separate the two. No incarnation, you have no atonement. They go together always. That's why I believe that the physical entrance of God into this world, the incarnation is greater than than anything else we talk about other than the resurrection itself. And maybe they go together too. It's certainly greater than Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the creation account. It is. I would say it's greater. For for 1,500 years, the people of Israel were defined by the Exodus account. It's certainly greater than that. Points to that, but it's greater than that. I would say the, the coming of God as a man, it's greater than all the laws, all the prophecies, all the miracles, all the teachings, all combined. It's greater because it, is, it's, it has to be one of the most mind-blowing revelations that's made known to us. You can't say God became a man and go, yeah, pass the butter. You can't do that. It's a leveling teaching for us. So it should leave us in a state of awe and wonder. But even more so, it is a greater revelation because by God coming, becoming a man, he solves the problem of slavery, sin, and death. Right? I mean, it's a glorious revelation to be in awe of, but even better for you and for me and for mankind that when he came and he gave his perfect life to ransom sinners like us so we don't have to be orphans any longer, Jesus Christ, the God-man, set us free from our self-imposed slavery and said, get in here, son. Get in here, daughter. Become an heir with me. The best Christmas gift ever entering in. So we see the necessity of Christmas because we're all enslaved. We see the Savior of Christmas. That's the God-man coming. And I, I got one more for you. And if you're at all tired, perk up here because these are gifts. These are Christmas gifts. I don't know what your tree looked like yesterday if you put presents under the tree. We have a relatively large family now. They gathered yesterday morning at my house and I looked under the tree and I thought, my goodness, how blessed we are. The presents, beautiful presents wrapped up for the people. Point number three, the gifts of Christmas. What comes from this Savior? um, I I pray, I do, I pray your your Christmas was so blessed. I pray that you enjoyed each other. I pray that you had some good food. Um, I pray that if you had some gifts that you wanted, you received them. I pray that you received great joy in giving some of the gifts that you did and you saw faces, the people you loved responding to it properly. I pray they didn't say, do you got the gift receipt for this? I pray they do not say that to you. It was a good gift. But if you truly understand the reason Christians celebrate Christmas, if you really get it, if you have put your faith and hope in the Son of God who became a man 2,000 years ago and then ascended to the cross to die in your place, then you are truly, immeasurably, eternally blessed regardless of how your day was yesterday, regardless of how your past has been or your future will be. You are eternally, immeasurably, and forever blessed. Look at verse 4 again. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 5, here are the gifts. To what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. And you are starting to get into the true purpose of Christmas. Christmas... I don't want to break your hearts. Christmas was never just about family gatherings and really good food and and giving and receiving of gifts. It was certainly never intended to be about Santa Claus or Jingle Bells and those things. Nor was it simply to cause mankind to wonder how is it possible that God, the Son of God, became a man and retained his divinity? How is it possible that he is truly God and truly man at the exact same time? It wasn't just to leave us in a state of awe and wonder. Christmas was and remains fundamentally, listen, a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission. The Son of God became a man and was put under the law so he could what? Number one, redeem us from the curse of the law. And number two, make us sons and daughters of the Father, heirs in the kingdom of God. So from now on, when you talk about Christmas, I want you to think rescue mission. Christ coming for me. Christ coming for you. The word redeem, it it literally means to buy back in the form of a ransom. Paul actually addressed it. He taught a little bit earlier in chapter 3, verse 13. Listen what he wrote. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming what? A curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who ascends this cross for Jesus. So the purpose and goal of the incarnation is the humiliation, it is the atonement for our sins. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, that he was made, what? In the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? So God the Father could place our sins, the sins of our flesh, upon his flesh, the sinless flesh, the sinless Son of God. So that God could do that. And in so doing that, what? So God the Father, remaining perfectly righteous, could cancel your debt. God the Father, remaining perfectly righteous, can forgive your sins. Completely. And not just forgive your sins, but then give to you freely the righteousness of his son, the true heir. That's the substitute that we talk about every Sunday. And I think one of the most profound truths about the Christmas story is not just that the son of God became a man, but he was cursed as a man. I think that if we really want to press into the love that God expressed for us, it's not just that he became a man, but he made our awful doom his own. Our doom. What we rightly deserved, he made his own. The Son of God became an orphan from the Father to make orphans like us, sons and daughters of the Father. One commentator put it like this. He said, it is this punishment by the God-man that makes his work as a redeemer beautiful. For it is in this punishment that the measure and immensity of his love can be seen. Not just becoming a man, but taking our curse that we might be redeemed. But the immensity of his love is not only revealed in him rescuing us from the wages of sin and death. This alone, I, I do believe that's sufficient to cause you to rejoice and praise him every day until you see him face to face. But this, this Christmas miracle includes you being adopted into the family of God and becoming an heir. Look at the latter part of verse four again. For God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse five, to redeem those who are under the law. Right? That's, that's our state. That's being stuck in slavery and sin to set us free from that so that we might receive adoption as sons. And this, this is the culmination of God's redemptive plan. It's not just to set you free from slavery and then leave you wandering around the earth. It's to set you free and then bring you into his family as a full-fledged son or daughter to strike to death your Orphan status. Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Adopted sons and daughters. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So just as God the Father sent the son, God the Father and God the Son, together, they send the Holy Spirit, not just to earth, to roam around and and convict people of their sin. It says it sends, sends the Spirit into our hearts so that we now, sons and daughters, can do what? We can fulfill the prayer that Christ had taught to the disciples, calling God our Father, what? Abba, Father. You say, Abba, Father, that's just a well, I don't even know what that means, Abba. You say, well, that's an Aramaic term. You probably unless you speak that. You wouldn't know that. It's been translated often and, and, and taught, and this is not wrong, as a, a term of endearment. So Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Father. And that's not wrong. It's true. Um, but in the context that Paul's using it here, in the Mishnah, it can also be translated as a child, listen to this, receiving his inheritance. As a child who is calling upon the Father for the inheritance that is now due him as a son. And that means, my beloved, if you're a Christian, you're an adopted son or daughter through the sonship of Christ, you are able to cry out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer a child under a manager or the law. You're no longer an orphan with no identity in Christ. You're a full-fledged, card-carrying son or daughter of the family of God. You're all the way in. There's no partial in. God saves you in Christ. You're brought all the way in. You're called into the same infinite, everlasting love that God has had. God the Father has had for the Son for all eternity. You're called into that. And that love is now yours. It's yours as what? As a son or daughter. Now I want you to just think of it for a minute. How much has God the Father loved God the Son from eternity past? There is no greater love. There's no higher love. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you become a son or daughter, you come into the family, and now the Father loves you as he loves his own Son. Again, these are earth-shattering truths, if they are true, and I would say life-changing. You taste that love, you just need a touch of it on your tongue. You taste that love, and you will be forever and eternally changed from the inside out, setting you free from all the foolish man-made solutions we come up with trying to get through times of difficulty, setting you free from your elementary principles, your legalism, your licentiousness whatever you're trying to attach to the gospel of grace. Christ has completed the work, so what? Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. And herein lies the greatest gift, you being brought into the kingdom as a son or daughter and made an heir, a co-heir with Christ to receive all the promises that God made to Abraham centuries before. If you're in Christ, my beloved, then you possess his sonship, the same love. And I don't know, I don't know what you got for Christmas. I don't know what you asked for. I don't know if you got what you asked for, and I don't know if what you got you actually were really happy about. I guarantee you that if you got the greatest gift you could have possibly thought of that was under that tree, this gift literally is infinitely better. It is literally infinitely better because you are an heir. Now an heir is someone who has inherited something or someone who will inherit something. Do you see yourself as that in Christ? You say, I I know that I'm a son and daughter. I know I'm loved by God the Father like he loves a son. But do you see that you are an heir too. You've inherited blessings now, gifts now, and you will inherit. What What have you already inherited in Christ? What do you have in Christ? How much time do you have, saints? How much time? I'll, I'll give you a few, but we could go on for hours. Well, I'll give you a few. You have a new identity. That you have a new identity. You are a son or daughter of God the Father, a citizen and friend of Jesus Christ the King, a living temple of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? Stop living like an orphan. You have an identity. You don't need to run around trying to seek your identity through fame or looks or prestige, trying to figure out who you are, going on these life journeys, these discovery journeys to figure out who you are. Don't do that. You're going to be equally lost at the end of that journey. Your identity is in Christ, a son or daughter of the king. You've inherited that. You've inherited pure righteousness. you know what that means? Stop working for your own righteousness. Stop trying to earn God's favor so that he's happy with you and brings you in. Instead, my beloved, receive all the righteousness that God gives you freely in Christ by grace through faith and then do the work God has called you to do in love. Jesus was a perfect son because he did everything in loving obedience. He wanted to. You have his righteousness, so you can too. You've inherited the power of God. You know what that means? There is no trial in your life that can truly overcome you. And if you have Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you have the power of the third person, of the holy triune God dwelling in you, what can overcome you? Nothing. You have power. You've inherited the word of God. You know what that means? You don't have to stumble through life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? All the answers are in the book. Every single one. Instead, you can know God. You can actually know yourself. You can know your old self. You can know your new self. You can know your purpose in life. You can know your end. We have the gift of the word to reveal this to us. My beloved, you have inherited right now the love of Christ, which means you can stop being so centered, so self-centered, and actually love others as Christ loves you. You have the love of Christ. You you don't need to be so inward turned, so bent on self. If you have the love of Christ, you can turn that outwards and love others as he loves you. You have all the promises God made to Abraham and fulfilled in Christ. You have every single promise. Go back and read Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 25 and look at those promises. You know what that means? The darkest days here will give way to a brilliant future for you and Jesus. Your darkest days Will give way. They must give way because all those promises are yours. You have right now the peace of God, which means stop being so anxious. Stop being so fearful. The peace of God is yours right now. You have right now the joy of God, which means regardless of your circumstances, in the depth of your soul, you can say, I am blessed. I am really blessed. Dozens and dozens more I can add to this. These are the Christmas gifts that God gives to you, heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Were any of those less than what you got yesterday? What if I wrapped those up and put them in a box and put it under your tree? How would you open that? How would you respond to that? But it's not just what we've inherited now, and I'll close with this. It's what you get in the future, what comes to you, Christian. What awaits you? What awaits you should shape how you live right now? In your glorious future, in the kingdom that you will inherit, no more slavery, no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more poverty, no more racism, no more injustice, no more failed marriages, no more abused children, no more murdered babies, no more starvation, no more governed oppression, no more broken hearts, no more suffering, period. Only... Peace with God. Only joy in Christ. Only light and love in God's kingdom. And that means, my beloved, that we can fight now really hard. We can fight hard for justice and fight for healing without being discouraged and overcome by it because we know that when Christ comes again in glory, he will in fact what? Make all things new. He will. So we can fight now because that's true. That's your inheritance. Your future inheritance will be nothing less than the entire earth. I don't know what you aspire to, but that's probably a little bit bigger. Jesus said what? The meek shall inherit the earth. So I have a question for you. Why are you working so hard to gain the world now? What are you doing, Christian? Why are you working so hard to get all the things you think you need now? That job, that car, that house, that family. you got to have it now. And Jesus said, saying, you're going to get it all and a ton more in the eschaton. When I come, the earth is going to be yours. Christ is your life. The world is your future possession. So I would counsel you, work enough to sustain your life and then help others as well, and then take all the rest of the time you have to do what? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do that, my beloved. Store up those treasures in heaven because you get it all back. You get it all back. Your future includes reigning with Jesus Christ on his throne. Those of you who do not like to be in positions of authority, you're a big trouble in the eschaton. You're going to be co-heirs with Christ. That means he's going to ascribe to you some authority to rule over the heavens and the earth. You! You, upon a throne. You know what that means? Stop all your megalomaniac desires. Stop the desire for power every time you're trying to exercise it in your marriage or in your home or at work. It's gonna be nothing compared to the power that Christ gives you when you're seated upon the throne with him. Instead, use the power that you have to serve others, to minister to others. You're gonna inherit rewards. Eternal rewards for all the work you do for Christ in faith here. Real rewards, my beloved. These are not make believe. All the serving of one another, all the evangelism, all the discipleship, all the outreach, all the preaching and teaching you've done, the ministering to the sick and the lonely and the downcast and those people that you really don't like, but you love them. You love them. Those rewards are not for naught. The work is not in vain. There will be waiting for you if you are storing up your treasures in heaven. Maybe this one's more sensitive too. If you're older like me, it is. You're gonna get a brand new body. Oh, what a body you're gonna have. You're gonna get a body that's never sick or broken ever again. You're gonna get a body that never needs another medication. No more headaches, no more diets, no more exercise, no more difficult nights. A perfect body made to worship God perfectly for all eternity. And if your body's like mine and it doesn't cooperate with you much, then this hope of inheritance, I will tell you, do not be discouraged, saints. Do not be discouraged. The body you will inherit is worth the wait. So stay the course. Stay the course. Again, I could go on and on, but I'm going to close with the greatest inheritance that awaits you. You know what that is? It's God. It's God himself. The psalmist writes, Psalm 16:5. listen. Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, infinitely beautiful, eternally captivating, the perfect, good, gracious, loving, compassionate, worthy of all glory and honor and praise, the glorious one, is yours. He's yours. He's not yours to own. That's what we think. He's mine. He's not yours to own. He's yours to, to have and to enjoy and to know and be loved by and to love in return. God is yours. And he becomes yours as a father to a son or a father to a daughter. The radical intimacy that we know as family. This is God's Christmas gift to you this year that through repentance and faith in the Son, the Son of God made flesh, he says, I'm giving you me. He gives himself to you through repentance and faith. He knows the dilemma and the mess we've made here on his good creation, all the slavery and all the sin, And all the death. He knows that. That's why He sent His Son, to make the Son known and to pay the penalty for our sin, to get us out of the mess, to get us back to God. It's God's desire for you to be one of His sons and daughters. It's God's desire for you to take your rightful place as a co heir of Christ. It's His desire for you. That's why you were made in His image, that's why you were created. Life in this world, my beloved, or in your heart will never make any sense until you see that clearly. You were made to be a son or daughter and co-heir with Christ. That's why you were made, to bring him honor and glory forever and ever. If you've not received this eternal gift, then I beseech you to confess your sins right now, turn to the Lord, and be saved. Open up that Christmas gift this morning. Be saved in Christ that you might become the son or daughter. If you have, my beloved, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, then I would encourage you to do this. This day and every day, live as the son or daughter that you are. Live as the heir that you are, that you might magnify the glory of God in your life. There's no need to run around searching for your identity. There's no need to try to consume the world. There's no need to try to manipulate people. You're a son or daughter of God, an heir of God. In Christ. So what better way to celebrate Christmas than to live like that? Amen? Let's pray. me, Father, take this text for us. and make your son known. We want to see him for all of who he is. Not only in his birth through the Virgin Mary, but in his perfect life and in his sacrificial death. We want to see his ascension. We want to know that he's seated upon the throne so that we can truly believe and walk in faith that we are sons and daughters too. I ask well that you would do this great work in our hearts that we might be a people who live as those, if you've already changed, that we live as the heirs that we are and will ultimately become. I thank you, Father, that we have this time each year to stop and recognize this. I pray that you would make it real to us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.